0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: This controversial mining program is raising environmental concerns. Tell us why, Gillian.
0: Our environment is on the point of a massive systemic failure. And we've got two choices. We can radically intervene on behalf of the planet. So we slow down economic growth. We reforest and depopulate. Or we carry on as we are and accept that our children will be the last generation of mankind.
1: Okay, Dr. Hannon, could she be right? Is ISA fiddling while Rome burns? Not at all, Gary.
2: I rest the case for astro-mining on a few statistics.
1: That equals jobs
2: for over one billion people for five years. ISA believes in sustainable development.
0: That, Mr. Hannon, is a contradiction in terms.
2: With all due respect to Jillian. Earth's 26 billion people aren't just going to lie down and stop economic activity because she
1: says so. But Dr. Hannon, ISA is part of the global economic growth driven infrastructure. And,
0: and that's what's killing us. No, Jillian, no, please. No, 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 no! You can't, you can't sustain economic growth and the environment. I mean, that's typical ISA, eco-trash propaganda, and you know it. The planet is burned out. It's burned out. And all that your space program accomplishes, by bringing that rock into our orbit, is to create the illusion that we can go on as before.
3: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2016. I'm Bob Met. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-winged.
4: It's Just Right...
3: to color and color it to black and white under the bad clothes everything will be all right and welcome to our show today where our theme is going to be all about global warming or is it Climate change, or is it global cooling? I keep forgetting, but it's one of those three things. And we're joined in studio today by our first-time guest, Dave Plum, who's now in retirement, but certainly very busy with his soon-to-be-published book called Climate Hope, An Antidote to CO2 Terrorism. Quite a title. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. And your book reads, quote, The merchants of climate terror have enslaved our civilization... Basing beliefs about climate on foundations of ignorance, we cower in fear of anthropogenic greenhouse gas. The climate change war costs billions of dollars annually. Our main achievement to date is skyrocketing electrical energy costs. Very true, they're going up very well. Let's understand the real issues, you suggest. And a legion of major factors that should inform the climate change discussion are seldom or never mentioned in the mainstream debate that prominently features irrelevant factors. The discussion no longer makes sense. So you're joining us today to help us make sense of this discussion. And so what we've briefly seen, you've certainly done more than your fair share of the homework and research on this issue. And from a layman's point of view, you don't pretend to be an expert or anything like that. Oh, please don't call me an expert. (laughs) Okay. Well, before we take your non-expert advice on this, um, and because I'll forget to do it if I don't do it now, to Remind our listeners, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to just write on iTunes, hear us on WBCq 5130 and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now David um, Dave how how why, why do this? why write a book you must something must motivate you. To write a book of this nature and to call it Climate Hope, where what is the hope that you see in the audacity message? of hope? Well,
4: the, <laughs> the hope in, is in this that, issue.
5: It is an audacious thing to have hope. No, the hope, as I see it, is that we're we're in a big panic about uh, global warming, greenhouse gases, and all this sort of thing. And I don't deny that any of that is is happening. I think the the science behind the uh, greenhouse effect is very uh, well proven and solid. And I don't believe you can put 7 billion plus human beings on this planet. I mean, any animal that size just eating and breathing and eliminating waste and doing what animals need to do to survive is going to have a major effect on climate. Now, with human beings, we magnify that effect by orders of magnitude through technology, so our impact is much greater than most other species. So it's just foolish to say that we're not having an effect on climate. We have to be. And I guess to that extent, I would be classified as one of the believers in the greenhouse effect and anthropogenic effects and all that sort of thing. Uh, Where I differ, though, is that I don't look at just the last 150 years. I look back over tens or hundreds of millions of years at Earth's climate history, and I note that right now we live in a time of nearly unprecedented low atmospheric CO2 and temperature. And the last time things were like this was about a quarter of a billion years ago. Um and uh that situation uh went on for some tens of millions of years. But after that uh Pangaea started to uh form and then break up. Uh we got uh Uh, The Siberian Traps formed, the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, Uh, the Deccan Traps in India put uh, trillions of tons of uh, carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere, Uh, about 15 times, each one of those put about 15 times as much CO2 into the atmosphere as we could do today if we burned all the fossil fuel on Earth tomorrow. And that drove the carbon dioxide levels back up to about 2,500 parts per million, and it rose global temperatures back up to about 25 degrees centigrade, which is where they've been for about 70 or 80% of the last half billion years. So when I look at today's situation, um, I really don't. Understand why we're panicking about a few degrees of temperature change or a few hundred parts per million in CO2 change because the planet has been much, much higher than that many times in the past, for most of its past actually, and nothing bad came of it. We're also living in an ice age, in an interglacial period that started 11,400 years ago, and these interglacial periods over the last several hundred thousand years have typically lasted about 10,000 years, so we're past due for this one ending and glaciers coming back. Um,
3: not something I'm looking forward to. (laughs) No, and I mean, I
5: think that's a much bigger threat, actually, than than global warming. So the hope I see is in terms of not worrying about putting too much CO2 into the atmosphere. I think we need more of it.
4: Now, when you say at the beginning that you believe in anthropogenic um, effects on climate, Surely, after what you just said about the history of climate, those effects have to be so minuscule as to be
5: insignificant. Pretty much. When you look at um, carbon dioxide content, it's 0.04%, which is uh, 400 parts per million. Uh, Breaking it down into something that's a little easier to understand, that's one part in 2,500. And when I first started looking at this, it was back... uh, while i watched an inconvenient truth and they were saying if it goes up like 10% which is 40 parts per million that's one part in 25,000 and i'm thinking if somebody offers me a raise of one part in 25,000 if i'm earning $25,000 a year and somebody comes along and says you're going to get a dollar a year more it's not going to make a heck of a big difference to my lifestyle and i don't think one part in 25,000 is going to make a heck of a big difference in Earth's atmosphere either. But is that a fair comparison? I, I, I would
4: agree that if I had a dollar raise over a year, I would not be too you know, excited over it. <laughs> but when it comes to things of, uh, of a scientific nature, I mean, the whole response to the biosphere to certain subtle changes in climate and environment sometimes a very small change can make a big difference. Would that analogy then sort of dismiss what could be um, a significant um, change due to small
5: changes in CO2? Now you're talking about tipping points, right? Yeah. The trouble with tipping points and a lot of the current discussion is that it involves an assumption that, um, that there are positive feedback loops. In other words, one thing feeds into another, feeds into another indefinitely, and temperature goes up and up and up and will never stop going up. That involves having an unlimited number of resources to keep feeding into these feedback loops. And that just isn't so. There's lots of negative feedback loops that come in there. If you look at the history, whether you look at it over hundreds of thousands of years or tens or hundreds of millions of years, you see temperature going up and down all the time. But, mm-hmm. but it only goes so far, and then it tips over and comes back down.
4: Well, I, I'm not suggesting necessarily that, of course, we have it, uh, unlimited resources, um, or that the planet will f- forever just continue to change in its temperature. What I'm suggesting is that sometimes, for certain species, a small change in the environment can cause an evolutionary change, quite literally evolutionary, in that species. In other words, they may adapt to change but, but themselves, isn't, isn't to, uh, uh, to counteract. It's almost like the, um, well, James Lovelock's Gaia <laughs> hypothesis. Are you familiar with that, James Lovelock's Gaia hi- hypothesis? Well... Or,
5: I've written a book, at least it's a book manuscript here, and the Gaia hypothesis is discussed in there, yes. Mm -hmm.
4: Well, in that, it would say that um, there are mechanisms in the biosphere. Life has a tendency to compensate um, for change. In other words, if CO2 goes up, all of a sudden you have more plant life. More plant life means they take in CO2, so it
5: counteracts these changes. Life has been modifying the planet on on Earth for hundreds of millions, uh, billions of years, actually. It started out with cyanobacteria probably about 3 billion years ago uh, when this stuff took off and it uh, basically oxidized the atmosphere and gave us the atmosphere we have today. So life modifying Earth's planet is nothing new. You know,
3: know, but I think the question's almost moot in a way, because on the one hand we're all saying, okay, global warming is happening to some degree, we're worried, what, about the 1% that we're contributing to it for the big change? That makes the question almost irrelevant to me. <laughs> if, yeah. if Unless we can say that we're 100% <laughs> responsible, then we might have a case to say that human beings can, can do something about it, if anything even needs to be done. Well, that's sort of what I was getting at,
4: mm-hmm. is that we're making such an insignificant change. But I did not want to dismiss, out of hand at least, that that sometimes small changes can make big differences in um, the biosphere, in certain sectors of the biosphere. Now, whether or not those changes are beneficial to man or not, I think is the real question, because when you're looking at climate change, I really don't give a tinker's cuss (laughs) about what happens to a particular moth uh, in the Andes. I want to know how is it relevant to mankind? How is it relevant to me? That's
3: the only real issue when we talk about climate change that I think uh,
4: that humans should talk about.
3: Well, it seems to me too that part of the problem is it's not a it's not a scientific issue; it's a political one, yeah. and I think that comes, Dave. One of the reasons you're here is because you're talking about a liberal bias. You you were saying that it's difficult to even uh, get this conversation going in the general media. Is that has that been your experience?
5: Well, I've noticed in the lo- local paper in the last several weeks there have been a number of uh, letters to the editor and a, a vox pop uh, piece that. Uh, basically are promoting this uh, plan that uh, Stanford University Professor Mark Jacobson has, uh, where he proposes that we can convert all of society to renewable energy. Um, And he's got 10 different sources, ways of, of generating renewable energy. Some of these are subsets of others. There's onshore and offshore, this and that. But it
3: comes down to five different types of renewable energy. There's uh, well, 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 I, I wanted to, to save that discussion for our next quarter. But what about talking about it? Like are you, you're, you're having problems getting your, your your voice heard. You've written a book, obviously, to yeah. address this issue. To well, I've written a lot it. of edit- letters to the editor in the past to to rebut
5: some of the. Uh, anthropogenic global warming, the AGW Mm -hmm. arguments. And uh, the free press has been very good about publishing my letters to the editor until recently. The last few months, they don't publish anything I write. Uh, And and I have a feeling that they've swung over to... um, The dark side. Basically basically accepting the the liberal agenda, and they just don't want to... um, well, they, they're not no longer in favor, it seems, of balanced reporting.
3: Interesting. Listen, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we're going to discuss the Jacobson Plan. It's only the wind and the thunder.
0: I act like a stupid child. I have nothing to fear. You are here.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: People will be waiting. Why? To save them.
2: But it's only the wind. The wind can't harm them.
0: The wind is only the beginning. Soon the sky will darken. The lake will go wild and the earth will tremble. Only you can save us.
5: But I can't do anything about the wind.
1: sky?
6: the water from the lake
2: right to the lodge. And we can expand the system see, and irrigate the fields and double the food supply.
0: And with the power of the lamp, lamp yeah. which turns night into day, we can cook twice as much food And as you taught us pre-
3: Free preserve. Preserve. Preserve.
0: For times of famine. <laughs> <laughs> so that is why you made the lamp, Kurok. So that I would never know when it was night and I would be oh. forever cooking. Oh no.
2: No, 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 no. That's not why I made the lamp at all to keep you forever cooking.
3: And welcome back. We're in studio with Dave Plum, who has written a book, Climate Hope. And We're hoping that we can pull some hope out of this whole message because certainly our politicians are going in the opposite direction. What is this thing you call the Jacobson Plan, and what is its intent and goal? Stanford University Professor Mark Jacobson
5: has proposed a plan where we can convert all of human society to renewable energy, and uh, there are five. Everything. 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 Like Uh, get
3: rid of what all fossil
5: fuels. As I understand it, we can go all renewable uh why when when fossil fuels are working so well well we'll get to that <laughs> but his his plan basically has uh, there's five different sources of, of energy and it's geothermal uh, hydroelectric uh, you've got uh, wind and wave power you've got solar power and you've got wind power now of those five there's only two that are uh, that can uh, do a more or less um, uh, a steady state output of of, uh, electrical energy and and that electricity is the only form of energy that uh, that these sources of energy produce Uh, geothermal um, and hydroelectric uh, can generate around the clock more or less on a steady state the other three have an intermittency problem where the uh, there's a lot of ups and downs peaks and valleys in their generation And it doesn't always correspond, as a matter of fact, rarely corresponds well with with, uh, usage. And the problem is we don't have good storage media, in other words, batteries. The very best of today's um, rechargeable batteries, and I mean, if you're talking about this sort of thing, you need to be able to recharge the battery. There's no sense buying an electric vehicle that doesn't have rechargeable batteries, for instance. Um, The best of today's rechargeable batteries uh, contains pound for pound about uh, 2% of the energy uh, of an equal amount of fossil fuel. So what that means is that like the gas tank in your car typically holds about 70 liters of of gasoline, which will weigh about uh, 52 kilograms. To put that much energy into batteries, you would need a battery that would weigh 2600 kilograms now that's about one and a half times as much as the vehicle and about two and a half times its maximum load capacity if you wanted to power 747 for an overseas or transcontinental flight the equivalent of full tanks of fuel the batteries for that would weigh 50 times as much as the aircraft it would weigh as much as 125,000 passengers because of the energy density issue of the storage media. The simple fact is that fossil fuels have a very high energy density, 50 times as much as as batteries. So until we improve battery technology to the point where they will store 50 times as much energy in the same mass of batteries, they can't replace are fossil we, are fuels. Are we anywhere so th- near that? Oh, no. We're, yeah. No, no. We're and we're two percent of the way there. we got 98 percent to go yet. Surely the Stanford <laughs> professor though must know this. Well a lot of these experts know a lot of things they're not telling us. I mean you would think Al Gore would have known about uh, hydrothermal vents and undersea volcanoes around Antarctica. You would think that people like Neil deGrasse Tyson would know the true history of Venus and wouldn't be trying to alarm us with what's going on there. Uh but they're all following this liberal IPCC agenda to tell us one small side of the story, and they're not telling us the rest of the big picture.
4: So is um, Professor Jacobson pulling the wool over our eyes? Does he have a a hidden agenda?
5: I don't know. I think he's probably a well-intentioned individual, and I think his plan would work for anything that's stationary. Buildings like, you know, office buildings, homes, and that sort of thing. But if you're going to talk about running uh, farm equipment and, uh, you know, ships and aircraft and trucks and cars and all that sort of thing, I mean, you need a type of fuel that is energy-dense, that's relatively safe to use, that's plentiful, that's easy to transport, and that's
3: fossil fuel. Nothing else replaces it. Well, it's interesting you say that, because just in this past Monday's London Free Press, the headline reads, as you can see here, Electric Future Gets Jolt, where the government's committed to, um, you know, having enough people to be able to plug in and they have to increase the whole hydro system. Clearly, our politicians are totally committed to this, and it's clear from this they're closing down um, alternate fuel sources and going totally electric. That just sounds insane to me when you consider the science. <laughs>
5: well, like I say, uh, all electric, aside from the storage issue, um, all electric for stationary things is is fine, but anything that moves needs a much more energy-dense type of storage media. The other problem with batteries is recharge time. It can take several hours to recharge even, you know, today's electric vehicles, and they'll only go like 100 kilometers. It's only a small fraction of a a full tank of gas. Um, At today's recharge rates, even if we could increase storage capacity 50 times over, it would take you a week and a half to recharge your vehicle. And the question is, how patient are you? Well, it's not (laughs) simply not a matter of patience,
4: though that is a good argument. It's a matter of cost. Electricity these days is skyrocketing
5: in cost. Well, and the reason for that is the Green Energy uh, yes. Act of, of Ontario. The Fraser Institute did a report in 2015, and they said that in that report that so far the Green Energy Act has cost uh, Ontarians. Uh, 10 times as much as it would have cost to achieve the same environmental benefits by other methods. And that if this government continues on its plan uh, all the way through what they're planning to do with green energy, by the time they're done, it's going to cost 70 times as Mm -hmm. much as it would cost to achieve the same results any other way.
4: I wonder if we can make a sort of comparison. Um, I can fill up my car and it would cost me about $35 at, the, at today's prices. With that, I can go about 600 kilometers, about from uh, here in London, Ontario, to Ottawa, for example, uh, without refueling. Yeah. Now, if um, that's a $35 trip to go to Ottawa, how much would it cost an electricity to do the same thing, say, in, in an electric car? If I had to charge that vehicle up, what would I pay an electricity cost, you think? You're asking me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you and, me
4: wrote the book. <laughs> and me without my computer and spreadsheets, yeah. Well, well, uh, well, well I have no idea, but
5: your your point is well taken because we look at our uh, hydro bills at home and and they're exorbitant. We're paying about 18 cents on average per kilowatt hour. Now, people are going here. to dispute that <laughs> and they're going to say, oh, no, it's only 5 or 10, you know, maybe 10, 15 or $0.12 in in the high peaks. But then you get this delivery charge that's a quarter of the amount of your usage, and then you've got taxes and fees and all kinds of other things added in there. So I look at the bottom line and divide that by usage, and I'm saying I don't care how that bottom line is arrived at. What it means to me as a consumer is that I'm paying $0.18 a kilowatt hour, and that's one of the highest costs of electricity anywhere in the world. Now, I would have to know how many kilowatt hours of juice you would have to put into your car to get 600 kilometers out of it, but that would be the calculation. I
4: suspect it would be a lot of money, Yeah, and I can't see how you can do it for less than $35.
3: Well, you know, I've already figured out the electric bill for this office or in this studio we're in here is well over a dollar per kilowatt hour Oh because of the the fact we use so little, the person who uses the least electricity pays the highest price per kilowatt. Because of the fixed cost. Because yes. of the fixed cost. So when we use zero, which is very close to what we use here, we don't need a lot of power to run the few things that we do here, um, we're still paying like uh, 45 50 bucks just, just to have a meter in place. Yeah. And so um, that's a tremendous charge. That's more than what our maximum bills used to be before that kind of a charge took place. Um, the whole issue of batteries, too. How come no one ever brings up the issue of the pollution involved in creating batteries they're filled with chemicals they have uh you know the components of them where where is all this stuff being stored and how do we get rid of these things when we have to what, what word we put them in the in the landfill sites when we're done with our batteries or are they well, for- I oh, actually no, <laughs>
5: i do it oh, says no, re- no, no, don't, no, you recycle them. No, no, no. Today's what, what, Actually, today's batteries, today's today's rechargeable batteries are very nearly 100% recyclable. I don't have a problem with the battery technology, per se, in terms of environmental impact. I think it's very good. I you're, just, you're,
3: say, you're saying that the batteries today are almost 100% recyclable? Yes. And how long do they last? Like, I mean, it can't, they can't have a...
5: Well, that's another problem. You get uh, typically 500 to 1,000 charge cycles out of a battery, and then it basically stops taking a recharge. So, well,
3: But that's the point. Once you get to that point, we're going to have all these batteries that need to
5: be disposed of somehow. They take them all apart and they recycle the materials and they build new batteries out of them. Was well, that what they do?
3: Oh yeah. And then what? They put new I mean, cam- you, new, new, The reason new batteries
5: cam- stop working, and it gets pretty technical with deposits on anodes and cathodes and all that sort of thing that prevent the charges from getting through and making the battery do what it needs to do. If you take all the components apart and clean out some of the gunk or whatever and put it back together, create a new battery out of it. And, yeah, like I say, the batteries today are very nearly 100% recyclable. Yeah, but I so don't know anybody who recycles batteries. They just throw them in the trash. I don't know. Isn't Tesla building a big new plant to do that?
3: Or is he just building initially... Batteries. You're not talking about car batteries, you're talking about other batteries.
1: You're right? talking
5: about
3: batteries in general, yeah. 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 Like yeah. That is the discussion, right? Batteries, right. Well, no. not necessarily car batteries. Like I'm surprised how that? long the battery lasts on my cell phone. Well, only. NICAD
5: yeah. batteries have uh, an environmental impact, of course, because of the cadmium, which is an extremely toxic material, and that's why you shouldn't be putting those ones in particular in landfills. But the other thing is that there's a the recycle issue, that they are so so well recyclable that uh, to me, that's the upside of, of battery technology. The downside is energy density. They simply don't store very much energy, uh, per mass. So Jacobson then is, uh, is not, his plan is not going to work. His plan will work for buildings, mm-hmm. for anything that moves, farm equipment, ships, planes, you know. So then, why won't the it's, it's, the, um, the the
4: free press or any other media? I would imagine because liberal bias has been a topic on this show. Well, you've got the citizens. Why won't they
5: listen to uh, somebody like yourself who is bringing up a very valid point? It seems to me they're in the pockets of the Citizens Climate Lobby, this uh, group that's uh, uh, has published a couple of uh, articles and uh, the Kleiberger brothers. They're all pushing this Jacobson plan, and I've written letters to say, well, the plan's good as far as it goes for what it'll work for, but let's look at the energy density issue of anything that moves. And a lot of what we use fossil fuels for is to power things that move.
3: And they don't seem to want to address that issue. Interesting. Coming down to the bottom of the hour now, i uh, going to take a quick break for a smile, and when we return, you caught my attention with this thing. You said there is a true history of the planet Venus. Interested in hearing about that. Let's talk about that when we return. Hi. Hello.
2: You're a team. Yes. You're the young man who ran with his uncle from Mrs. Brown. Yeah, that's right. And you're uh, Mr. Baldetti? Baldetti. Baldetti, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You uh, you work in a newspaper. That's right. Daily Sun. Yeah. You're going to put this in a newspaper. <laughs> well what is it just what it looks like it is you've never seen a one before you yeah, know there she is <laughs> boy it sure is a nice one ah which is a marvelous observation considering you have never seen a one before what is it it's a rainmaker. maker that's what it is <laughs> i had one in the old country i left it to my cousins oh huh? to make rain To make a living. Rain and making is a big occupation in the mountains where I come from. Oh! (laughs) Look at those pine trees and that lake.
5: I swear that's honeysuckle I smell.
2: I swear that's a little orange blossom thrown in. It's unbelievable. Growth. Exactly like that of Earth, on a planet half a galaxy away. What are the odds on such duplication? Astronomical, Captain. The relative size, age, and composition of this planet makes it highly improbable that it would evolve similarly to Earth in any way.
4: You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ. And we're in studio with Dave Plum, who has written the book Climate Hope. Uh, Dave, before we went to break, you sort of mentioned uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Venus. Is, you know, I, I assume this is, is going back to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, perhaps suggesting that runaway greenhouse effect, as the uh, eco-terrorists would like to say, um, would make Earth more like Venus, which is a hellhole of a planet. I understand.
5: It is. Uh, he <laughs> mentioned that in his uh, his TV series. Um, what was it? Uh, Space Time, Cosmos, of Space Time Odyssey. Uh, a lot of the alarmists are saying saying if uh, greenhouse uh, gases, if carbon dioxide increases by forty parts per million, we're going to basically turn into an inferno here on Earth. He says if it goes. Up to 600 parts per million. Doesn't matter what number you choose. The thing with Venus is that we call it our sister planet. And in the very early days when Earth and Venus were first forming, they were very nearly sister planets. They were roughly the same size. Venus is just a little bit
4: smaller. I understand the diameter is about 460 kilometers in difference. Smaller. Yeah, v- it's very not, small. Uh, very. You know, the, um, the, the mass. Similar.
5: The mass differs by about 11 percent. Um, but uh, <clears throat> Venus is 42 million kilometers closer to the sun than Earth is. Yes. And that's, that's significant, even though Tyson says it isn't. Um, both of these planets were hit by something early in their formative years. And in Earth, the chunk that got knocked off became the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else happened on Venus. Venus is an odd duck in the flock of solar system planets. Venus spins backwards. And it spins very, very slowly. Every other planet in the solar system spins the same way Earth does, but Venus is the only planet in the solar system with retrograde spin. And it spins uh, Earth spins 243 times as fast as Venus does, so that means that a day on Venus is 243 Earth days. In other words, it's eight months for Venus to make one turn on its axis. Uh, as a in matter a reverse f- direction
3: from us. In <laughs> a reverse
5: direction. And as a matter of fact, Venus orbits the sun more often than it turns once on its axis. So um, a year on Venus is, uh, or a day on Venus rather, is a few weeks longer than a year on Venus. So it's, it's, it's an odd <laughs> planet that way. Um, It has no magnetosphere. It has no plate tectonics. Uh, The atmosphere is 92 times as dense as Earth's atmosphere. It's shrouded in dense clouds of sulfuric acid. The surface temperature is 464 degrees centigrade, and the pressure at the surface is uh, the same as if you were a kilometer underwater here on Earth. And we call this a sister planet? Well, surely just for size.
4: Well, yeah, we the have things wa- that we the have things things. That's water on where Earth. Simil-
5: thats where the similarity ends. The similarity, <laughs> the similarity ends with size and with initial composition, and the fact that both planets are in the same solar system. <laughs> <But> that's all. <laughs> that's all we have. That's all we have in common. So Neil deGrasse Tyson is basically
4: scaremongering when he dares to suggest that a planet uh, like Earth, much further away from the sun, composed with. Um, carbon
5: dioxide in the atmosphere versus I think it's 97% at Venus. Let me explain what happened on Venus. In its early days, because it was so much closer to the sun, water was not able to condense. So there were no oceans on Venus. For the first millions of years of Earth's life, water condensed, and it rained and rained and rained. It rained enough to fill the oceans. As a matter of fact, uh, when it was all done, there was very, very little land on Earth. Um, it was literally pretty much water world back in those days. We lose 95,000 tons of hydrogen to space every year, which, uh, if you combine that with oxygen, it's the equivalent of 342 Olympic sized swimming pools of water, it just goes off into space every year. Um, Hydrogen is a very, very light element. It's the lightest element and consequently a planet with low gravity like Mars has great difficulty in retaining its hydrogen. It just floats off into space. Combined with that, you've got the solar wind, ionizing radiation blasting out from the sun all the time. And ionizing radiation tends to dissociate hydrogen from oxygen and water molecules. And what that dissociation does, basically, is it knocks the hydrogen loose from the oxygen. The hydrogen is much lighter. The solar wind picks it up and carries it away into space. The oxygen, being heavier, hangs around um, because the planet's gravity keeps it there. And this is what happened on Venus, because its atmosphere in the early days was essentially superheated steam. It was too close to the sun for water to form. It stayed in the form of steam, and I've seen some estimates that the temperature may have been as high as 2700 degrees centigrade back in those days. So all this superheated steam rises up, uh, gets dissociated by the solar wind the hydrogen gets carried off into space, and over a couple billion years, most of the hydrogen disappeared from Venus in that way. Now, what's left is oxygen. The other thing that this superheated runaway greenhouse effect that was based on water vapor, not on CO2, it was a water vapor-driven greenhouse effect. It literally baked the carbon out of the rocks on Venus. So almost all the carbon on Venus is now in its atmosphere, which is why the atmosphere is 92 times as dense as Earth's atmosphere. It's basically aerosolized carbon. On Earth, part of what happened with all the raining in the first couple billion or several hundred million years at least, rain washes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And by the time the oceans were filled, over 99% of Earth's carbon was in the ocean or on the bottom of it. It's sequestered is the technical term. So very, very little of Earth's carbon was left in the atmosphere, whereas the opposite thing happened on Venus with the um, runaway water-vapor-driven greenhouse effect. It baked the carbon out of the rocks and put it into the atmosphere. With all the hydrogen, most of the hydrogen being carried away, some some of the hydrogen combined with sulfur Um, and oxygen to form H2SO4, which we know is sulfuric acid. So that stuff hung around. So that's where Venus's hydrogen is. Now, what else was left was oxygen, and it's looking for something with which to combine, because oxygen is a very reactive element. And what does it find? Lo and behold, there's all kinds of carbon here, right? So the oxygen and the carbon get together, and lo and behold, you've got carbon dioxide. 96.5% of the atmosphere of Venus is carbon dioxide. Um, And it's not that there's a runaway greenhouse effect based on carbon dioxide today as a matter of fact today's Venus is much cooler than it was back in the early days when all this was going on it's shrouded by thick clouds of sulfuric acid and sulfur Uh, Sulfate aerosols in a planet's atmosphere actually cause cooling, they reflect a lot of sunlight back into space, so these sulfuric acid clouds reflect most of the sunlight back into space now, and it maintains Venus at a relatively cool 464 degrees centigrade. None of this can happen on Earth today because 99.945% of our carbon is sequestered. It's in rocks and marine deposits. We can't get at it. A lot of the rest of it is in plants and animals and the Earth's crust and only a very, very tiny fraction of Earth's carbon. One
3: part in 20,000 of Earth's carbon is in the atmosphere. So what you're saying is the carbon dioxide on Venus... Is a consequence of a, of a process, not a cause of it as such. Exactly, and we're being told the opposite we're here. We're being told the opposite on 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 planet Earth by our politicians and all the all, uh, that it's the opposite. That it's a, it's it's the same thing as we always been saying too. That you know, carbon dioxide is the result of heat. It doesn't cause heat. You know, is is that true too?
4: Well, we talked about it on an earlier show where. A rise in uh, temperature, global temperature, actually causes a release of CO2 from the oceans but it's a very slow process, and it, is, it responds about six, 800 years after the temperature goes up, then the CO2 comes out of the
5: ocean. I think I mentioned that mm-hmm. on a previous show. It's complicated, and I'm not is. sure it's fully understood. And the, the much greater concern about CO2 release is actually Arctic tundra melting. There's a lot more coming, and that's a lot of that's methane. But methane, when it gets up into the atmosphere and, uh, and the ionizing radiation hits it, it gets converted into CO2. Uh, another big source of CO2 on Earth, of course, is all the peat bogs that we're burning in places like Indonesia and South America to plant palm, palm, plant, plant palm plantations because palm oil is used extensively in, as food additives, it's used in cosmetics, and another big use that's coming, uh, more prevalent for, for palm oil, is biofuel. So, so we're burning well, millions of tons of, of peat Mm -hmm. to to clear these
4: forests now neil degrasse tyson to get back to why we talked about this particular topic is suggesting if i get this correctly that because some people are burning peat some people are idling their cars waiting for a tim horton's lineup to move um we're going to turn into a venus and of course that is patently absurd
5: Yeah. And here's the thing. If we burn all the fossil fuel there is on earth, there's about 4 trillion tons of fossil fuel on earth. If we burn all that fossil fuel tomorrow, we will put back into the atmosphere about 15% as much carbon dioxide as the formation of the Siberian traps did a quarter of a billion years ago. They put between a hundred trillion and 200 trillion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We can't come close to doing that. Um, And And so even if we burn all the fossil fuel on Earth tomorrow, what we would do is we would restore Earth's atmosphere to about what it was in the mid to late Jurassic period. Carbon dioxide would be about 2,489 parts per million, which is right where it was in the Jurassic period. Now, in the Jurassic period, we had global temperatures that were 10 degrees centigrade greater than they are today. They were 25 degrees centigrade. Carbon dioxide was about 2,500 parts per million. And what do we have in the Jurassic period? We had giant ferns, giant trees, giant animals. Life loved the Jurassic period climate. Life loves carbon dioxide. Yes, because (laughs) carbon (laughs) dioxide, contrary to what the U.S. Supreme Court says it's a toxin. Carbon dioxide is a plant food. Without carbon dioxide, there are no plants. Without plants, there are no people. So, so it's stupid to basically be trying to eliminate carbon dioxide. I mean, by that kind of reasoning, water's a toxin too. And maybe we should be trying to get rid of that. But um, the point being that if we burn all the fossil fuel there is on Earth, we're only going to restore the climate to what it was in the Jurassic period, and that climate, life loved it. So. This is why I say I don't dispute the fact that humans are contributing to this process. I'm just not worried about it. Good enough. Well, we're going to take a little break, but um, when we come back, we're going to
4: focus on the human aspect of climate change because I want to um, get into that particular aspect of it because we're talking about um, plants, we're talking about other animals, and uh, I want to talk about man and how climate change and the politics of climate change and liberal bias and all of that has to have have a human-centric component to it to, to be even discussed, if you ask me. We'll be back after this.
2: Magnificent. Flowers, beautiful flowers everywhere. Natural splendor beyond compare. The whole landscape, one vast garden without any sign of weeds or briars. Trees and vines laden with fruit of strange shapes and colors. Nature tamed completely, and more bountiful than ever before. At last I'd found a paradise. But it would be no paradise if it belonged to me alone.
1: Alex Epstein, the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Okay, I want to read you a statement. Former Republican Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson issued a statement saying conservatives should support a market-based solution to carbon emissions via a carbon tax to avoid a coming economic disaster. Is this a good or bad idea, and why?
6: It's important that Republican does not at all mean pro-freedom, and ex-business executive does not at all mean pro-freedom. Many of these executives made a lot of their money through taking it in indirect forms from other people and being what they call crony uh, capitalists. So when I hear Hank Paulson says ex, I don't think, oh, voice of freedom is giving us really good advice on how to have a country of liberty and prosperity. I think sort of statist uh, exploiter, and he's a very dubious human being, so I know a lot about Hank Paulson, so I'm not very impressed, uh, but I'm certainly less impressed by the kind of claim he makes. I mean, he, what is his basis for saying that? If he has a model of the future, the question is, is that validated in any way, shape, or form? And then, if there are negative consequences that he can prove, which he can't because the climate prediction models can't predict climate, is he integrating that with all the benefits that would be derived from burning those fossil fuels? And the answer is no. So his thinking is very bad. I mean, there's, that's just, there's no other way to put it. Okay, I want
1: to, you mentioned climate change. So I want to talk about, uh, and you mentioned modeling. Why have our efforts, in your opinion, to model climate change failed so miserably? And could we
6: do a much better job? I don't know who we... It's, it's, it's an incredibly complex system. I and mean, you ask, why is it so hard to, to model an economy? Well, because you only have a limited kind of understanding, and there are a lot of unknowns. Now, with human beings, there's a free will component. So there are different kinds of complexities. But with the climate, there's just all these different dynamics, and we only know so much about the drivers, and, and a lot of what matters is the magnitude. So, But the, the point, sh- we're way too, even in this show, We probably at least a third of it is about climate. So the question I would ask is is climate a big problem for us? Is it a problem that we're creating that we're making worse? Well, we we see that uh, adjusted for population in the 30s you have multiple years where 10 million plus people by today's, you know, numbers die from climate. Today, we're under 30,000 many years. So this is a problem that we're overcoming because climate is a is a natural problem. It's an inherent problem because climate is inherently volatile. It's vicious and it's variable, and we overcome that through climate protection measures such as technology, such as industries, such as heating and air conditioning, such as sturdy buildings. So if you care about climate, you have to realize nature doesn't give us a safe climate that we make dangerous. It gives us a very dangerous climate that we need to make safe. If you care about humans' climate safety and climate livability, industrialization is priority number one. If you want to get rid of industrialization and have a good excuse, then man-made climate change is priority number one because it's a good excuse for deindustrializing.
1: Uh, when, when you look at the number of deaths, for example, is that a function of no change in how dangerous climate is? or is it more a function of the fact that we're able to Th- take There's no measures. inherent
6: amount of danger that climate is. It's always an interaction of the technology we have and what nature does. So you can take a thunderstorm. Is that dangerous or is it the setting for a romantic evening? <laughs> well, it depends on your state of technology. So uh, you can't, same thing with disease, right? Is a disease dangerous? Well, is it inherently dangerous? It's dangerous if you're naked and afraid, but if you have the technology, it's not and or you can get rid of it. So danger is a function of nature and what human beings do, and that's why it's going down.
1: All right, in an absolute sense, though, in terms of danger, is climate more dangerous today? No, I, no, it, I, no idea. It, uh, well, you can't I'm just, I'm, just talk- I'm not talking about whether we're on the planet or not. I'm just saying in terms of climatic dangerous conditions, are, are, are there more tornadoes? Are there more thunderstorms? But, or is, but is every, there more every phenomenon
6: in nature is beneficial to some organisms and and not to others so there's no such thing as saying how dangerous is the planet you can't have this collectivist view where a, the planet is just a rock that has a lot of different organisms on it so you can talk about the interests of one or another or some group but you can't say the planet as a whole is dangerous the planet as a whole is safe absent say the atmosphere disappears or something and then yeah it was dangerous for everybody and then there's no more life and uh, but that doesn't appear to be happening
4: that was Alex Epstein on The Aaron Herber Show, and Alex was the um, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And I think he's expressing something that I agree with in this entire debate about climate change, global warming, the coming ice age, what have you. And that is, what's in it for us as human beings? You have to have that anthropocentric viewpoint um, no, not many many people really care or should care about what what's happening to the ocean floors if it doesn't impact man. I want to know is how many people are dying because of tornadoes? Can we stop that? How many people are dying because they don't have air conditioning? Can we stop that?
3: You know, um, nobody even asks those questions.
4: No, I mean, but the industrial revolution is what what saves man from nature. Nature is nature is nature. It is what it is. We have to live with it. We have to change it as man. That is our role, I guess, to survive. What do you think about Alex's viewpoints uh, there, Dave?
5: Well, first off, I don't think we try to live with nature. I think we try to overcome nature. Yes. We try to control nature. And uh, when you look at at oil fields that were formed on land that are now several kilometers underwater and rock, and you look at salt deposits that were formed underwater that are now like 1,200 meters above sea level you have to realize that this planet has an awful lot of ups and downs Uh, you talk about sea level rise but nobody talks about continents rising and falling which is what's really happening Um, so all these things we can't do anything about Uh, we think we can control the climate through modification of a very very small component that that does have an effect but it's minor and it's greenhouse gas sort of thing and and we're doing far, far worse things to the planet than burning fossil fuels. We're, we're stripping the planet of its rainforests. Uh, we're burning peat bogs. We're, we're, we're doing all kinds of very nasty things. I mean, even well, nasty to whom though? To nature, to, to the nature, planet. but beneficial to man, no doubt. We don't just go out there and burn these peat bogs. Well, no, but, a hell but of we it. don't. We don't live in isolation from nature. Robert, I mean, you know, if if nature's destroyed, man's destroyed too. So, I mean, we need to start to, you know, pull our heads out of the sand of anthropogenic global warming is start looking at all the other things that matter. But isn't uh, property
4: rights, don't they matter as well? I mean, if I own a forest and I, I find benefit in cutting it down and selling the wood so that I, I may live and to provide for my family, isn't
5: that important it's not, it's not. It's not a good example because when you cut a forest down, you don't cut the whole forest down. You take out the, the big trees and you leave a That's lot true. of the smaller middle-sized if, if trees to sensible. grow up.
3: If I was a sensible man, well, I yes. mean, that's, that's just, you know, <laughs> well, I've heard it said many it. times that there are more trees in North America today than there were when the first settlers came because we started putting out things like forest fires when lightning started it and, and, and issues like that to the point where we almost went to the other extreme and we learned that we had to let those forest fires yep. burn a bit. Yep. So under, the, under that uh, maxim of, you know, um, nature to be, command, to be commanded must be obeyed, Isn't there some trade-off in all of these things? Like, I can see certain um, eliminations of huge tracts of forests affecting the climate, unpredictably, I would think, in most cases, because nobody really even knows how it would. But it's always going to be replaced with something. Is it not? Life, (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been down to South America or that area, my God, life is teeming. It's just amazing. It's not like living in North America at all. And and uh, it's just a self-perpetuating process. So one form of life replaces another. Are we talking about like when when you when you when you talk about concerned with nature? What does that actually mean? Well, life yeah.
5: is resilient, and as I said before, one of the the main reasons, perhaps even the main reason, this planet supports life, is because climate changes all the time. A lot of things change. Mm-hmm. The oceans need to be stirred up periodically, or they they stagnate. They go anoxic. There's no oxygen. Everything in the ocean dies. There's a, a phosphorus cycle, a nitrogen cycle in the oceans that, that you know is controlled largely through its orbital dynamics. Um, we We seem to think that we should be trying to stabilize the climate and keep it exactly the way it is right now, when the opposite is true. For the benefit of humans and every other living thing on Earth, climate needs to change. This planet needs to do a whole lot of shake, rattle, and roll to keep things stirred up. It's a violent planet in a lot of ways, naturally. I mean, you know, with the atmosphere and and climate, um, geologically, one thing and another, but all these things are necessary to support life. The, um, there's been at least two people from the International
4: Panel on Climate Change from the United Nations who have come out and deliberately said that currently the debate on climate change is solely to redistribute the wealth of the world that is that is why we're having the debate debate is to
5: make the poor richer and the richer poorer. Um, any comments on that as an agenda? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I see that in this uh, liberal media bias all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That makes sense So, I mean, it doesn't make sense that we're
4: doing it, but... But it's just putting it all into perspective, isn't it? Because here you're saying that... It doesn't make scientific sense. It makes a lot of political sense for the people that are doing it. But what I'm trying to say is that here we have an understanding, if you sit down and think about it for uh, as long as you have, Dave, um, that climate is... fact of life that climate changes is a necessary fact of life we are some of us are fighting against this uh, change Um, what was it like King Knut trying to stop the tide from coming in you cannot do it but what they're doing is they're taking our fear of change blowing it out of proportion and then using that as a tool to redistribute wealth, i.e., Marxism, socialism, whatever one ism you want to call it, it's nothing but control of people. Would you agree?
5: Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't dispute that. Pretty straightforward. There's a lot of th- <laughs> there's a lot of things I see in this debate that don't make sense from a common sense perspective to or At me. least from
4: a scientific perspective
5: uh, Well that's common uh, sense too. Yes. <laughs> Which seems to be
4: Pretty uncommon these days.
5: I mean, We look at a very small segment and the, the example I use is we all our models and and all the paranoia and everything is based on what's happened in the last 150 years but if you look at 150 years out of Earth's life expectancy that's looking that's like looking at 47 seconds out of a human lifetime and I don't know about you but I don't plan my life on the, what happened in the last 47 seconds. I I do like five-year plans.
4: We didn't talk about the Milankovitch cycles. Before that's we another leave. whole segment. Yeah, before we leave, though, can you quickly tell us about the
5: Milankovitch cycles? Because
4: you, you just reminded me of it when you said um, we were talking about the length of time that you look at the climate.
5: There's, there's very good evidence that Milankovitch cycles are the primary drivers, uh, at least over the last several hundred uh, thousand years. Of uh, We live in an ice age that's been going on for 2.58 million years, and it's called the, uh, the Quaternary Ice Age. We've been for over... Eleven thousand years in in an interglacial period, and uh, Milankovitch studied these cycles. It's all about Earth's orbital dynamics, and he determined um, that uh, there's a, a major cycle of uh, eccentricity, which is how elongated the earth's orbit is uh there's another cycle that has to do with the earth's uh actual tilt and another cycle that has to do with precession of the equinoxes and he spent his life studying this and i'm sure uh malutin milankovitch was a good deal more intelligent than i am when it comes to these kinds of things so uh what he found was that when earth's orbital eccentricity is at its minimum uh And when the axial tilt is at its minimum, and when land masses are most nearly polar distributed, that's when you get glaciation. Now, right now, land masses are mostly polar distributed, and they're drifting further north, so they're becoming more polar distributed as time comes on uh the um, eccentricity uh is halfway through its cycle between maximum and minimum and for the next 25,000 years it's moving towards minimum which portends glaciation and the axial tilt <clears throat> is also partway through its cycle and for the next 11,400 years it's moving towards minimum tilt which also portends glaciation so you've got the eccentricity you've got the obliquity the axial tilt and you've got the distribution of land masses all three of those things are moving towards conditions that Milankovitch has determined through his studies portend return of glaciers so beware, to me, that's, that's, the scary. Age. that's scary <laughs> that's and, and, scary and, that, and we can't do anything about Earth's orbital cycles or, or no. continental drift so <laughs> Instead, we'd bury our heads in the sand and say, "Well, let's deal with the thing that we can do it's 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 like we're in a building with four predators, you know we've got three lions and a mouse." We're not worried about the lions, which will dismember us and eviscerate us. We're worried about building a better mouse trap because <laughs> the mouse might take a little nip out of us.
3: Well, that's a great way to end the, the show. Uh, certainly, I warned you how quickly the hour would go by. I think one thing we're agreed on is that a carbon tax is not going to solve any of these problems, even though we haven't discussed that. We'll have to have you again back in the future, Dave. We're in studio with Dave Plum who has written a book called Climate Hope and we hope that much of what the information he has in there becomes better shared and known by all of you. So that's it for this week. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right and be right back here. We'll see you then.
2: Fade into colour colour into black and white Under the clothes, everything will be what in the world is that? It's a moraine making machine. Oh, when is it going to rain?
3: Is it really going to rain?
2: <laughs> I haven't done anything yet. Uh, what's what's that thing with all the holes in it? This thing makes it a spread. Spread. This thing in here makes it a concentrate. Concentrate. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh. Uh, what's what's in that? A carbon collected from the exhaust of the automobiles around here. It has smog in it. Rain of clouds react to smog. Oh, well, I didn't know you exploded things. I thought you just danced. I do dance, but the machine is a very important part. Now, in the old country, I dance on the grapes, huh? And when the factory across the river explode at the same time, that's it. combination I've been working on for a long time.